The Christian's relationship with money and resources is an interesting one. When you look at all other groups of people, most other groups, right, um, perhaps most non-religious people, when they think of money and these things, or perhaps even in the giving of money, right, it's a completely optional thing, right? Culture is wired where, you know, even in a democracy, in a capitalistic culture, right, it's all about you should go work hard to earn what you can earn with the skills and so forth that you provide to own the money that is due unto your value, worth, skills, what have you. For a non-believer or non-religious person to give, it is completely done out of altruism. Oh, I'm doing it for the good of the world, the good of those around me, right? And yet, as believers, one of the interesting things about our relationship with money is that God actually commands us to give it away. To give it away for the service of His kingdom, to the local church, to those that are around us, so that others who are in need could actually have something of value to sustain their own lives. You see, but when commands and these things are starting to get attached to money and these things, for the Christian, it adds new layers and new depths in our own relationship with God, does it not? It forces us to have the challenge to change, perhaps even confront our perception of value, money, and worth, and perhaps even challenge the idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ with the money that we believe, if Scripture is true, and we believe it is, that God has given to us. Not just that we have earned, but something that's not ours that we have been gifted with for a period of time. See, money is a very interesting topic for the Christian as we live in the world around us. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been continuing on in Luke. Again, I, I've still not, I'm not yet ready to call this a series through Luke, okay? But we've been just going through Luke, okay? We've been going through Luke. We've been talking about a lot of different topics. The persistent widow. We've been talking about the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And today, as we continue straight through, we find ourselves not in a parable, but in a real-life account of Jesus' encounter with a crazy rich ruler. Right? Of course, I'm doing a playoff of crazy rich Asians, right? right? We meet a crazy rich ruler. Now, what's going to be at play in today's passage is not just going to be an ethic on money, but on how the ethic of money actually challenges and actually confronts our perception and the reality of our relationship with God. Scripture doesn't hold back. Jesus doesn't hold back when it comes to dealing with the believer's stance on money as it directly correlates and relates with our relationship with God. And as we see through today's text, Jesus is actually going to reveal that those two things aren't dichotomies or they're not two separate things that we're to look at, but they're actually two things that seem to go hand in hand. And we're going to see it live through the life of this rich ruler who confronts Jesus, and then Jesus has an opportunity to confront. Many of us here, even today, perhaps in our own wrestle with money, finances, our futures, and the like, don't really know where we need to stand when it comes to this idea of value and worth for ourselves. Do we pray for it? 
Am I not allowed to pray for it? And if I have it, what do I do with it? And today, I'm not going to go out to give exact parameters on what we ought to do with our money. But what I want to tackle through this parable, not, sorry, not this parable, but this story, is the relationship that Jesus calls us to have with money and resources. And so the question I want to throw out to all of us today is this, how should we relate with wealth? How should we relate with money? What is our relationship to money supposed to look like? And out of it, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would continue to convict us as a community of God to view the things that God has given rightly in our lives. So if you, again, you have your Bibles already in front of you, or if not, on your phones, turn to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to continue on as we have been in our journey through the latter parts of Luke. So if you're there, let me hear a resounding amen. Oh, very nice. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start by reading verse 18 and on. So what it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Stop there real quick. When you look at just how this story begins, right? Everything seems dandy. In fact, it actually seems very respectful. You have this rich ruler who comes in front of Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you're a straight shooter, you're going to try to go in and answer that question directly. Whoa, rich ruler. Let me me give you the steps, right? You would think that Jesus would approach this person in this way. And yet, Jesus being the master, communicator, engager, dialoguer that he is, he sees through the question. And so with this young ruler's question, he poses another question to get a little bit deeper at his intention. He asks, why do you call me good? No one but God alone is good. Do you see what Jesus is doing? This is one of those, oh, snaps moments, okay? Yeah, if you are bold enough and you're willing enough in your Bibles, you should write that down on this margin. Oh, snaps, okay? What Jesus is about to do with the ensuing conversation is he is about to ask this young man the question. By saying, no one but God alone is good, he's asking the question to him, do you believe that I am God? And that what I have to say is worthy to be followed. So this is how this conversation is now framed and posed. So verse 20, he continues. You know the commandment, says Jesus. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, I love this, honesty, right? Pure honesty. He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Someone give this young man a round of applause. Good job. Give him a cookie, right? I mean, but it's actually worth congratulating. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't murder. I didn't steal. I didn't bear false witness. And I honored my father and mother. You know, if society just held, right? Let's just say, okay? We're not trying to, you know, evangelize the whole world. Okay, let's just say, right? But just people the general public kept to these commands, I think we'd have a lot better of a society. Just, just 
That's my opinion, right? You just have morals that are worth following. And I think you'd see a lot of things in society get better. It's worth congratulating. But here's the thing. The way that this young ruler is approaching Jesus, again, last week we talked about in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? What was the Pharisee after? He goes to pray because he wants a, he wants a clap. He wants some applause. He wants an endorsement from God. And this young ruler in this text is coming to Jesus in very much the same way. He's trying to confirm. When he asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's not actually saying, what do I need to do? He's saying, come on. Come on, Jesus. Tell me I already did it. Tell me I'm good. Oh, come on. I know it. I know it. I know I have what it takes to enter this kingdom. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. I love that adjective, extremely rich. This is your ESVs, okay? Crazy rich, okay? Now, it's very important that we have to take a look at this response. He became very sad. See, the issue that many people want to take up with this passage is you read what Jesus is telling this young ruler and you think into yourself, oh, to be saved, I need to go sell everything. Right, like, I think I remember, like, as a youth student, you know, when you're super gung-ho, you're like, yeah, like, you you know those super, <laughs> no joke, okay, have you ever been in youth group back in the day when What Would Jesus Do bracelets were super in? Right, I'm a fan, I love it, I, I think it's great, okay, but like, you're judged, your morale, your, your morals, right, I should say, your, your holiness factor is judged by the number of what would Jesus do bracelets that you have on both hands, right? If you're super holy, you actually have them around your ankles too. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, right? Or like, you, you know, some people are like, hey, how long have you had your what would Jesus do bracelet? It's like, all my stitching's gone, right? You know, like the what would Jesus do is like some different letter, like I-J-A-K, I don't know, right? Um, right? People used to wear what would Jesus do bracelets like crazy as their show and their sign, of holiness before God, right? But in those youth days, right, when people were super holy and they would hear a passage of this scripture being preached, they would immediately assume, oh my gosh, I'm not holy unless I'm like giving everything away. No, this text is actually saying I have to sell everything. And I know, I know students who have like in the, in the past, right, they've gone to their parents and go, why do we live like this? Mom, why do you? Why did, you, why did you buy this house? How could you, right? You got to go on missions. <laughs> you hear stories like this. Now, we'll revisit this a little bit more fully later on as we continue in the message. But I want to I say this, okay? Jesus in this text is not making a universal command for all of the people of God to sell everything that they have, to give everything that they have unto the poor. Because then you would create another social problem. You would sell everything you have and give everything you have to the poor only to create a new segment of poor that is yourself, okay? <laughs> I think Jesus is a lot more sensical than that. So what is Jesus doing? 
Jesus in this text is trying to put on display the content of this crazy rich ruler's heart. He's posing questions. He's asking him to do things, not to just make him do that. Although I will say in this text, I do believe that Jesus was asking him if he was willing to do that. But the point is that Jesus was actually trying to reveal, bring awareness of what is actually on this man's heart. And it has to do with the, the issue of money. Um, back at my, my church in, uh, in the OC, right, in California, um, I was tasked with teaching um, some of the membership classes at our English ministry, okay? Um, and, and, you know, teaching membership classes is always interesting because sometimes I would be tasked with having to go over the section of teaching on tithing, right? Now, like, I'll be honest with you. I know tithing and giving offering and these things, it's absolutely biblical, okay? It's in there, okay? I'm not, today's sermon is not an in-depth thing on giving to the local church and so forth. But again, I, I would be tasked with having to teach on tithing. Okay. Now, I would always feel a little bit of discomfort because the only background that I have on people asking to give money is when I would turn on the TV, you flip the channel, and you find some crazy televangelists, right? God loves you. He wants to bless you. But before he blesses you financially, you got to bless me financially, right? Here's this number. Here's our PayPal address. You could Venmo. You, I don't know, okay? They, they, they would say all these things. And so, so for me, like, again, not because it's a, like a biblical discomfort that I have, but just a social discomfort, right? Because of what these things could represent, right? I would go through these teachings on, on tithing and on money, and it's like, you know, in today's culture, it's really sometimes inappropriate for the pastor to talk about money. But the irony is that Jesus talked so much about wealth, money, and so forth all throughout his time on earth. And I believe it's because there's nothing for the individual that speaks to their allegiance more than money, wealth, and resources, and what we do with it. One of the first lessons that I learned in college when I rededicated my life back to the Lord, right? My disciple would always tell me, Billy, when you start working, you better learn to give. And he said, in fact, don't give when you have something to give later. Give out of what little you have now. Now, at the time when I was in college, I was a, I was a work-study student, right? Any of you guys ever work like a work-study job, right, where, where the department has to set aside money for you, right? But then the university matches the other half, right? And so you'd get paid, right? I mean, when I got my first $12 an hour job, I was, I was exhilarated, right? I used to count how much I made by the number of hot Cheeto bags that I could buy, Right? Um, this is like, you know, pre, I mean, there's a lot of inflation, right? But at the time, like, you know, hot Cheeto bags were like $1.50, right? You get a decent bag of hot Cheetos, right? So I could, I'm like, so I could buy about five bags of hot Cheetos for every hour that I work, right? <laughs> right? At the time, I was eating at McDonald's a lot, right? So I'm like, oh my gosh, if I work an hour, I could buy myself value menu for the whole day, right? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? And so like, my paychecks, when I would get them, right, I'd get like $200 a month. And I was so happy, so happy because I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I could buy like a pair of shoes on sale, right, really treat myself out to like a double quarter pounder, right, I could, I could navigate away from the value menu, right, and I was so happy. And I remember this was when I first learned about tithing. So I'm like, dude, 20 bucks, 10%, right, 
right? I'm like, oh, dude, God, 20 bucks, that's a lot of money. Ooh, that's, that's, 20, that's 20 double cheeseburgers, right? No, I'm, this is when double cheeseburgers were still a dollar. Before it became McDouble, they took out a cheese, right? And then they raised the price to $1.50, right? For a dollar, you got extra cheese and patty all together. I was like, man, God, this is 20, 20 double cheeseburgers. But Lord, I give every 20 double cheeseburger or McChicken to the glory of your name. And I remember during this time, right, like, like you feel the pull. Every time you get your paycheck and you take the top off from the start, you feel the pull because you're counting everything that you could do with that money you're about to give. I remember when I got my full-time job, I, I, I was working at UCLA, but by the grace of God, I ended up going back to UCLA to get a full-time job at the same department, the Asian Languages and Cultures Department, right? They extended me a full-time job, right? And I've never, like, I remember my discipler telling me when I got my job, he goes, Billy, just, again, I've always told you to tithe, but your first paycheck will be the hardest. And I was like, Psh, come on, man, you've been teaching me how to tithe, man. How, how difficult could it be, right? I got my first biweekly paycheck, right? And I had made more money in one half-month paycheck than I did in an entire year of working as a work-study student. I had to take out my checkbook. And friends, let me tell you, that was the most difficult check that I had to write to my local church. Because suddenly, it's not like 20 double cheeseburgers. I'm like, these are, this is like a hundred, hundred Big Mac meals, you know? (laughs) Right? I mean, I've never, never in my life. And yet, I recognize something so important. It's that there's nothing like money that pulls my heart away and challenge, challenges my view of God and His sovereignty and His goodness and my trust in Him more than the thought of giving my wealth away. I believe this is why that the first lesson that every new believer ought to go through is not about studying up more on the five points of Calvinism, predestination, and all these, again, great things to study and learn about, but it's actually the practice of giving back to God what is rightfully His. Some people are hardcore, right? I mean, like, Korean, some, some Korean folks that I know, right? First-gen mentality, right? I mean, like, they would teach a lot of my friends, right? Or even some of my old pastors, right? They would be like, I gave my entire first paycheck. And I was like, <laughs> it's amazing to have that much faith in the God who gives us every little thing in our lives. There's no greater challenge of lordship for the new believer and even existing veteran believers than the topic of money. If I give unto the Lord, will I still be okay? That's, I believe, the fundamental question that we're asking when it comes to the idea of what we have to do with our wealth. Which is to say, money is directly correlated with our certainty to sustainable living. But what makes it difficult is how money affects our perception of where or who our sustenance and living comes from.
That's what it's challenging. One pastor, one commentator puts it this way. He says, the issue of goodness in this passage raises the question of honoring God, trusting Him. That this is not a test of works, but a probing of this man's heart. An examination of his fundamental allegiance. His sadness is the most breathtakingly, painstakingly breathtaking thing. Thing that poses itself in this passage. The sadness is interesting. Because I think it actually points to two layers of this man's sin. On On the one hand... His sin is active in that he is unable to trust God with the wealth that ultimately has been given to him by God. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. And he can't trust what God would have him do with the wealth that God has given to him. Active sin. To not trust. But on the other hand, we see another passive sin being involved as well. You see, the proposition that Jesus gave was not just sell everything and store your wealth away. Jesus said what? Sell what you have and give it to the poor. Give it to the poor. In his sadness, his sin shows itself passively in his inability In his non-desire to serve the very neighbors that God calls him to serve. And again, it's not a mistake that Luke points out this detail. Because again, I said this last week as well. You will not find any other gospel that is more interested in the lives of the marginalized, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, those who are far off, cast away, than is Dr. Luke. Because he himself is a Gentile. He himself is someone who sees from the other side of the spectrum. This young ruler cannot trust God, nor is he interested in helping his neighbor. He's enslaved to his money. He's in bondage. He can't get himself to let go of what he believes brings him ultimate Security. Which is why you see another thing that ought to confound you in this passage, in this representation of the rich young ruler. Not only is this ruler rich, but the way, the paradigm by which he understands faith in God, following Jesus Christ, is that he's fundamentally rooted in the idea of religion. Now, by religion, we're talking about how you do good things to quote-unquote appease God so that you can control Him to get what you want. Why this young man walks away so sad is because he recognizes that if he follows the way of Christ, if he follows the way of God as has been shown through the Son of God, then he can no longer control God for what he wants. He wants to keep his wealth, and he wants his goodness to be the thing that takes him into the kingdom of God, into heaven. Wealth in the hands of religious people is a scary thing. Because they believe that their holiness 
their wealth and their well-being is attached. How does it show in this passage? To their goodness. Which is why Jesus asked that question back to them. Why do you call me good? Do you even understand what goodness from the perspective of your Father in Heaven is? Goodness sometimes looks like you give your security away to bring someone else who's in a position of societal, financial, broken insecurity to bring a little security into them. Again, I want to I make this clear. Being rich is not bad. Having wealth is not bad. Our perception of what wealth and money and these things are dictate what becomes of the wealth that God has given to us. And so verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, lamenting almost, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Unless you are reading this passage thinking to yourself, Man, there must be some world where a camel can enter the eye of a needle. Jesus is not talking literally here. Okay. Have you ever tried... This is going to sound so ridiculous, okay? Um, but how many of you guys own a water bottle? Yes, we probably all do. When is the last time you had an existential moment as you stared into your water bottle and asked yourself, how can I fit myself in there? Jesus is not bringing up this illustration as a matter of plausibility. He's bringing up this illustration as a matter of impossibility. A rich man with a view of wanting to enter into God's good graces by his wealth and by his goodness and holding on to his wealth in the process, it is impossible for that man or that woman to enter heaven, to enter the kingdom of God. The reason why Jesus presents this as an impossibility, right? Is fundamentally this. A love of wealth and finding security in wealth alone, you are saying to yourself, this is going to be the thing and the source that provides me security throughout my life. When at the same time, Jesus says, no, it's not wealth. Only I can give you security. This is why Jesus draws such a hard line on the issue of wealth. Following wealth or following him. There are many things in life, friends, where you can have a both end, and it's good to have flexibility in your approach to it. But Jesus says, when it comes to the idea of money and your allegiance to it or your allegiance to me, there's no question. You're on one side or the other. That is not to say that we don't struggle in the process. True? It's not easy. But Jesus says, when all said and done, you will find your security ultimately in one place or the next. And so the problem, the main issue that Jesus is raising in light of this young rich ruler is this. In his inability to give, this rich ruler believed that other gods like mammon, like money, had more to offer than God does. 
He trusted the security of wealth more than he trusts the security of God in Jesus Christ. And so this presents a dilemma. It would be terrible if I just ended the message here, right? Fret not. The disciples are going to ask the question that we're all asking. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? (laughs) Who can be saved? Jesus! This dude, like he seems to have everything going for him. And he's not willing to part with his stuff. But like, we just kind of gave everything away. And I don't know, like, are, are we all right? Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, your sacrifices weren't in vain. Now, I do have to qualify this, okay? Sometimes people mistake that the disciples, like, sold and gave everything away. This is not true. Peter still had a family. Peter still had mom and a wife, right? And, and they had a place where they were at. When he says he left, he, he, in this case, okay, it is literal. He literally left his home to, to literally follow Jesus, okay? We, we, we left our lifestyles behind. Jesus, I gave up my job. I gave up my life as a fisherman. So that I could fish for men. I gave it all. Well, everything I knew. And Jesus says, don't worry. Your sacrifice was not in vain. What is Jesus saying? It's not a matter of, did you give everything away or not? The matter is, do you trust me? Are you willing to follow me where I take you? Some people are just gifted financially. Praise God. Sometimes in the church, we look at rich people and we judge them. We just assume that because they have money, that they're like, (laughs) that they're irresponsible. I got to know someone who's pretty wealthy. Right before I came to Korea. Became a great friend of mine, right? It's interesting, right? Sometimes you're just kind of like, what do you do with everything you have? And, and, you know, the topic came up, right, about how even, like, on, on the car that he drives, right? It's not the most luxurious car, but, but it's, it's, it's fairly luxurious. It's, it does more than take you from A to B, right? And, you know, like, he gives me a ride in it, and I'm like, well, okay, this, this is cool. But I'm poking at his, at his, at his mind. Like, well, how, do you, how do you see through this? And he goes, well, in my line of profession, if I don't drive this sort of car, he goes, unfortunately, people think I'm a bad I'm bad at my profession. They think I'm failing. And so it's unfortunate, but one of the ways that I have to be able to step into the lives of these people who need to reach out to me is, is something like this. It's fascinating. It told, gave me a totally different perspective. Wow. You know, from where I'm at, I'm just going, that's excessive. But for different folks, it requires different things. Now, the reason why I'm able to take this in is not just because of the fact that he drives his car because he's in that profession, but because I've seen how much he's willing to give away unto the church and to different people who are in need. He would confide in me. Hey, Pastor Billy, someone wrote me this email and they said they're in need. Do you think I should give to them or not? 
I say, I'll let the Lord lead your conscience. And he would give. He'd give to random students who would message him and say, I'm in trouble. And he's like, I've never met this person, but I think they're genuine. Just because you have wealth doesn't mean you're on the wrong side of the coin. Again, it's how you view it, what you choose and decide to do with it. So again, I want to go back to this question and this idea. You might still be asking, well, I'm listening to this message, Pastor Billy, and I feel a little bit of guilt. (laughs) Like maybe I should give more. Perhaps, perhaps the Spirit is tugging at your heart to give towards a certain cause or certain need, a certain individual. I don't know. That's not between you and me. That's between you and the Lord. But but I do want to say this. The take-home that Jesus is trying to say here is not sell everything you have right now and immediately go on missions. For some, that may not be the thing that Jesus is asking. In fact, Jesus might be asking, no, I actually put you in that place so that you could steward your wealth. What is Jesus saying? Well, we got to look at the surrounding context. In Luke chapter 19, you're going to find another character in the name of Zacchaeus, who is another tax collector, hated by his entire community. And at the end of his story, when Jesus calls him to make restitution, he gives back everything that he made unjustly fourfold. But giving away fourfold didn't mean that Zacchaeus give, gave away everything that he had. Jesus still said, no, it's okay for you to still hold on to some of what you have after you give away and make justice, restitution. Again, Jesus is not saying to everyone at every given time, you must sell everything. Instead, he is posing a question. What is money to you? And depending on how you answer that question of what is money to you, it will be revealed who I am to you. In God's economy, freedom to God says this. Money is not your master. I am. And so if you want to know who your master is, are you willing to follow what I ask you with your money? The world says what? Nah, man. You ain't free till you're blinged out. Rich on top of rich, right? Boom. Diamonds, bling, bling. Wah. Yah. I joke about this, right? But like rap, Right? I'm, not, I'm not like a hip-hop rap aficionado, okay? I, I don't want to project that, okay? I'm, I'm not like a hardcore rapper or like, you know, I'm into hip-hop culture scene. Although I do think it's, too, it's really cool, you know, okay? I'm just being honest, okay? But one thing I'll, I'll say is this. I do feel like rap has taken a turn. Hip-hop has taken a turn from, from at one point really displaying the angst and the issues that the African-American community had. So all of a sudden, right, you turn on like, you know, there's a radio station called Power 106, right, in SoCal, right? And now it's all like, club, club, drink, drink, shots, 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 bling, bling, money, yeah, right? And it kind of like sums up like the direction of, of where things are going, you know? But back in the day, right, again, I, okay, I don't know every song that was produced. I don't, okay, I don't know many songs, right? But it's like, yo, the pain of my people, you know? And so forth, right? But, but something took a turn along the way. And again, I don't think this is just hip-hop, but I think this is actually the infatuation of our culture at large. Culture says, you need more money to be free. 
to freely get what you want, to let the desires of your heart come true. But you know what's ironic about that? They say you need money to be free, which by definition makes you a slave to money. You need money to have what you want to get. So let me put it this way. Freedom to self actually costs bondage of self. In the world's economy. Which is why Jesus is so, again, poignant in making the comparison and drawing the lines between our view of wealth and even the idea of salvation. He says, what do I need to go into heaven? First, he points out his religiosity. And then he ends on the note, you still lack one thing. You don't view wealth properly. Because the text at the end begs the question of not only what should we do with our money, but why do you want to be saved? Why do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, crazy rich ruler? Why? You know, one of the, one of the pastors that, ha- that, has, that has had so much influence in my life from his ministry afar, I don't know him personally, but it's Pastor John Piper. I remember listening to a message as he was talking about, you know, eternal life, heaven, and so forth. And it caught my attention, right? Because, like, I mean, sometimes, like, I get really excited about heaven because, like, I believe heaven is going to be pretty dope. Sorry, did I just say that, <laughs> right? It's going to be tight, okay? I believe that when we get to heaven, right, people ask all these questions. I actually, for a season, studied on the topic of heaven, right? You know, I used to think that when you go to heaven, it's like, it's going to be terrible. Like, we're going to be like floating angels without legs, right? I would used to wonder, Jesus, when I enter heaven, at what point are you going to cut my legs off? You you know, and and I'm just going to be like a fluttering, I don't know, right? White-robed, heavenly Asian, I don't know, right? Okay. And I was fascinated. Wow, you know what? Heaven is actually going to be like Eden, but better. I used to think, oh my gosh, I'm so sad because when I die and I go to heaven, I won't remember anyone that I knew. Uh, right? People have that, have that idea. But actually, when you get to heaven, friends, uh, let me assure you, you will have a better memory in heaven that you, than you did here. Part of the reason is because we have to stand in front of the, the great right throne of judgment. Right? And Jesus is going to ask, tell me about your life. And, you know, in that moment, we're not going to be like, I forgot. (laughs) Jesus is going to be like, I kind of, I'm giving you a glorified mind, a glorified body. So you're going to remember everything. You're going to remember your people, your friends, your family, the folks that God has gifted to you in this season of life. He's also going to give us jobs. He's going to give us homes. I believe what he says in John 14, that he's preparing for us a home, right? We'll probably look at Paul and be like, dang, your home is like, it's not a home. It's like a, it's like. What do you call, like, if 50 castles are put together? I don't know, right? Like, castle. I don't know, okay? But sometimes in our thought of heaven, we get caught up in thinking about the luxury that will be provided, the jobs that we will have, and the life that we'll have there. But I remember what Pastor John Piper said, right? He said, heaven, if I get there and Jesus isn't there, then it's hell to me. If I get to heaven and Jesus is not there, then it's hell to me. 
Some people love heaven because they think it's a continuation of their wealth. Heaven is to be loved as a place. Not because of what the place provides, but the person who's behind it. Why do you love going home? Well, let me ask it another way. For some, why do we dread going home? Because either you enter into family or you walk in to loneliness. If heaven is our home, it is not the amenities that make it home to us. It is Jesus who stands in that place. The question of wealth actually asks us the question, what or who is your treasure? Because what your treasure is now will be your treasure for eternity. That's why that lesson that I got on giving when I was making $200 a month and I thought that was the world to me. To give $20 as a tithe and if God's grace would compel me to give more as an offering on top of that was not only teaching me how to give, but it's teaching me how to love him better. How to love Jesus better. College students in the house. Woo! Let me tell you something. You might tell yourself, I'm so poor. I'm so poor. I'm so poor. I'm so poor. I'll give to you, God, later when I have more to give. I'm going to give you a heads up. You're not going to give then. You won't give to God then what you're not giving right now. You know, we look at some people and go, man, that person is a really giving person. You know why they're a really giving person? Because they're really giving. You might be saying, I have a $20 weekly lunch allowance. $2, come on, what's the big deal? Imanon, right? 20,001, what is 2001 to the church? What, what, they, you know, they buy maybe a couple packs of, you know, instant coffee mix for welcoming, right? (laughs) See, but it's not, it's not about the instant coffee mix. It's about your heart. Your $2 out of 20 says so much about where your heart is. About where your allegiance lies. And so what's the point? How are we to view our wealth? I think the text is making it clear. It's that we need to trust that everything God gives is not ours to own, but ours to steward and give. Everything that God gives is not ours to own, but it's ours to steward and to give. My money is not my money. Oh, that's hard to say. Right? It's hard to say. Because already, I'm already thinking about what am I going to eat for lunch with my money in my bank account, with my time that I have, with my own needs that I have. Mine, 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 mine. It's even as we approach going out to eat lunch. Why do I pray before I eat, after I buy my meal? Lord, 
Thank you for this sustenance. I pray with this money that I have used upon myself, that you have given to me, and with this food, this glorious yang yum chicken. God, sustain me that I might be a vessel to serve those that you've called me to. Or if there's no one to serve, Lord, that I, that I might be of service unto your worship as I praise your name. Changes the way that we think about everything that we do with the wealth that's been given to us. Because friends, prosperity, more than anything, tends to make God's sheep forgetful of his goodness. You know, it's really funny. When you read the Exodus, God's people really loved God when they were in Egypt, did they not? God, we love you. Bring us deliverance, Moses. Lord, save your people, because if you don't, we're going to be the laughing stock of the nation. So for the sake of your name, save us. Right? They loved him. But when did they begin to forget? When they had all the quail, all the manna to eat in the wilderness. Prosperity tends, us to, tends to make us forgetful. Which is why I think it's poignant that the author of the Proverbs, if you read Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7, this is a verse. You know, you have verses that sometimes you read in Scripture and you go, I didn't know you were a Bible verse. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Some of you guys might want to write this down. It says this, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me first falsehood and lying. Make me integritous, God. But secondly, I love this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be so poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a mighty prayer. God, make me just okay. <laughs> oh, isn't it funny? Jesus taught us to pray like that as well. Give us this day our daily bread. So by way of application, how do you know who your master is when it comes to your relationship with wealth? How do you know that you're not mastered by money, that we're not mastered by money? And I think it shows in our willingness to give it for the sake of God's church purposes and missions. This could be literal missions. This could be your tithes and offerings. But I believe this could even show in your willingness to give to those who are in need. The homeless. The destitute. I believe it shows in these ways. I'll end with this story, okay? Um, I was taking a class. We had a summer session at seminary, and it was really exciting because um, like at once every two years, you had the leading scholar of the Gospel of Luke come to our seminary to teach a summer class on the Gospel of Luke, right? He, he's written a, um, a two-volume commentary on Luke that's like, you would never read the whole thing, Right? It's like thousand, over a thousand pages. I mean, how could you, is there that much to be written? Right? Apparently there is, okay? And so I'm super excited. I mean, this guy is like a Luke genius. He would show up to class with just his laptop, no notes, and he just took us throughout, through the entire gospel of Luke. And, you know, we would have his commentary in front of us as we're trying to keep pace with what he's saying. And it was crazy because he would tell us more than the commentary has. So if he really wrote down everything that he could write down, he'd probably have written like a 2,000, 3,000 page commentary, right? It was awesome, right? Like Bible nerd in me is just like, yeah, right? Rejoicing. But I remember we got to the topic of wealth and this idea of giving. And so he gave us a story, right? He's a, he's a seminary professor, right? He's, he's, he's like a, he's a scholar, right? You would think he's not 
you know, he's more smart than he is like pastoral, but, but he gave us a story of how he was traveling somewhere with one of his colleagues. He's going somewhere and they parked at some place, right? And as they were getting out of the car in the parking lot, there was a guy, a man who approached them saying, hey, can you just spare us some, some, spare me some money? You got some change, man, right? Now, again, something in us sometimes when we have people approach us like that, we go, oh, man, that person's going to go get drugs. <laughs> oh, he's, he's going he's gonna to go get cigarettes. Oh, he's going he's gonna to do something bad with that money. Yeah, so the responsible thing to do as a Christian is to not give. Well, sometimes we really think this way, right? I mean, and this is a real, real situation that we could wrestle with. And he asked us, what do you think I did? You know, when a seminary professor asks that question, you never answer, right? You just wait until they continue because there's going to be a twist. So seeing all those things, professor reached into his pocket and gave him a relatively generous donation. And so he's, he's just walking along his way and his colleague turns to him and asks, he goes, why did you give to him? You know that he's probably going to spend or use it on something that's probably not good. And my professor replied this way. He said, I responded to him saying, what that man does with the money I gave to him is between him and the Lord. But when someone approaches me, my willingness, not to say that you have to give every time, but what he said was, but my willingness to give to this person is between me and the Lord. What that man does with the money I give to him is between him and the Lord. But my willingness in this moment to give to that person is between me and the Lord. I am still responsible for where the Holy Spirit tugs my heart to give. Friends, I want to say this, okay? The point of this message is not for you to go next time you see someone, you have to give. But the point is, where the Spirit tugs, where the Spirit leads, are you willing to show once again that you trust God more than what's in your pocket? My encouragement to you, friends, is that wealth would not become your master, but it would become your slave. That you would do with it as God so desires and pleases, so that he, and so that our neighbors would be blessed with what he has gifted us with. Let's pray.